Well, last week I started off by transporting you back to ancient Rome, telling you what it was like to live under the emperor, whether Tiberius or Nero or, or some other Caesar. Every person in Rome lived under the dominion of the emperor. And today, though, I want to likewise transport you back to ancient Rome, only this time telling you what it was like to live as a slave. As you may know, the Roman Empire practiced slavery. They were not the first to do so, nor the last. It's important to understand, though, that Roman slavery was not like American slavery. It's easy to transpose our understanding of slavery back onto the ancient Roman world. But that would get us off track because there were several significant differences Roman slavery was its own unique institution, and and I want to start off by telling you a little bit about it this morning. First, let's ask, how did you become a slave in the Roman Empire? How did you land that? Well, a good good number of slaves were actually prisoners of war. Rome, as you know, was known for its military conquests, and every time, instead of necessarily slaughtering the opposition, they would enslave them. Sometimes a single military conquest could bring in as many as 50,000 slaves into the empire. Others became slaves because of debt. If you had debt you couldn't repay, then either voluntarily or by force you were made a slave. Our solution to such problems today is is jail time. Their solution back then was slavery. Some were born into slavery. Like American slavery, slaves were not people, they were possessions. And therefore when slaves had children, those children belonged to the master, not to parents. But however you became a slave, though, one thing Roman slavery was not motivated by was racism. In America, American slavery was really part and parcel with American racism. That's just how it was. But in Rome, anyone could be a slave. Race was not a factor. The Romans were happy to enslave all people from all nations and races equally. And they were also happy with enslaving their fellow countrymen. It it didn't really matter. Oppressing a given ethnicity simply wasn't a driving force behind Roman slavery. Additionally, contrary to American slavery, Roman slavery could end. You could get out of it. Some benevolent masters simply freed their slaves out of goodwill and appreciation. Some of the gladiatorial slaves earned their freedom by fighting well. But open to most, though, was the option to buy your freedom. Slaves were paid a wage, and if you save pretty much your whole life, you could, though, buy your freedom. Let's ask another question now. What was it like, actually like, to to live as a slave in in the Roman Empire? That's how it started, but then what was it like to actually live that way? Well, answering this question largely depended on your job. All slaves had occupations, and if you're valuable, there's a good chance you would be treated well. The slaves who received the worst treatment, though, were those working in the mines, Miners, those encountered, they encountered that the worst working conditions, the worst living conditions. It, it pretty much was a death sentence back then. And prisoners of war and criminals were usually sent to be slaves in the mines. But if you had another job, you would fare much better. And this is kind of foreign to us because in American slavery, pretty much no slave really had it off well or was treated well. They were all kept uneducated and unskilled. They, they were not allowed to prosper. They were given the least amount of responsibility possible, but that's not how it was in ancient Rome. Slaves held a wide range of very important occupations. Some were farmers, teachers, managers, accountants, doctors, nurses, musicians, artists, and more. 
Some of those who were the most highly regarded were cooks because wealthy Roman masters really wanted to impress their guests with good food. So if you're a good cook, you would have it off pretty well. Some were given charge of their master's finances. They would run his business. Some were more educated than their masters. Some even had their own slaves and became wealthy. Also foreign to us is the way in which uh, ancient slaves looked and dressed. I think today, because of our history, we think of slaves as you know being shackled, having a ball and chain, just wearing tattered clothing, maybe looking a little bit frail. But in ancient Rome, slaves were not chained. They were free to go about their master's estate. They were free to go about the city. In fact, the master would send them on errands. They would do his business, and they were free to move. And they also were not wearing rags. In fact, they, they dressed just like freedmen. If you were walking down the street, just by appearance, you could not tell who was a slave and who was not. In fact, that was a problem in ancient Rome. They wanted a way to identify slaves more easily. Living conditions were pretty good for most slaves, especially household slaves. They had rooms in their master's homes. And those rooms, they were good enough that they were used for visiting guests to stay in. So it's not like there was just a hole in the wall. Some masters treated their slaves like family. They had a benevolent relationship with their slaves. Just to give you a sense of how truly different it was back then compared to uh, American slavery, take, for example, the Saturnalia Festival, named after Saturn. This is a, a tradition once a year where slaves and masters would trade places for a day. The masters would, would act like the slaves. They would do everything the slaves were told to do, and the, the slaves would, would act like the masters for a day. Totally legit. And the masters did this once a year to, to show their appreciation for their slaves. And that is something we can just never imagine happening with American slavery back in the 1700s, 1800s. That would just never happen. At the same time, though, Roman slavery had its dark and cruel side. It's not like it was a good thing. Slaves were used for sport and entertainment in the arena. Some were forced to fight to the death against one another or wild animals. Female slaves were forced into prostitution. Families were separated. Harsh masters did exist, especially early on during the days of the Republic, before the Empire. And just like in America, slaves were beaten and some were killed without consequence. Slaves were property. You could do what you wanted with your property. You could be nice or you couldn't. And early on, there were no laws. There were no regulations to protect slaves. You had no one to appeal to. There, you had no rights. So you were just at the mercy of your master. Overall, Roman slavery was not as bad as American slavery. Aspects of it can be likened to being like a butler or a servant today, but it was still filled with evil. And it was a wicked institution created not by God, but by man. Scripture is explicit with that. You have something like marriage, an institution created by God. Slavery, though, created by man. The liberty you take away from others, coupled with the harsh treatment you give to them, it just doesn't fit under the category of treating others the way you would want them to treat you. Nevertheless, this was the ancient Roman world. This is what it was like back then. But wait a second, why do we care about the ancient Roman world? Well, it's because this was the environment the scriptures were written in. And the better we understand that environment, the better we're going to understand the scriptures themselves and their application to today. And we come to a text this morning in 1 Peter. 
speaking to slaves in the ancient world. And we need to understand that background. Peter is addressing slaves. As Christianity spread in that first century, many new converts, something most, were slaves. So if, if this were you, if you were a slave just converted in that Roman Empire, you had a huge question immediately just hanging over your head. What did your spiritual status in Christ mean for your earthly status as a slave? Is this going to change things? You've come to salvation by faith in Christ. You've come to find a new spiritual freedom. You're free from sin in Christ. But wait a second. Until you die or until Christ returns, you're still on earth. You're still a slave. So now what? What does this mean for your actual slavery? Does this change things? What should you do now? How should you live? That was the question they were all facing, especially early on. And, and God speaks to them in Scripture. So what do you think? What do you think is God's inspired message for those who were just converted as slaves? We've been talking about God's strategy for Christians living in the world the past couple of weeks. So what do you think is God's strategy for those living as slaves? What kind of message would you expect from the New Testament writers to those living under the evil institution of, of slavery? Maybe you expect a message of rebellion. You need to revolt. You need to create a slave uprising like, like Spartacus and, and fight for your freedom and overthrow this evil institution. Maybe you expect a message of, of running away. Just run, flee, just run for your freedom. At the very least, you, you'd expect slaves to be told to disobey their masters and, and to refuse the yoke of slavery and just fight for their freedom. But you don't hear any of these things from the Bible. None of these messages are found in Scripture. Instead, God's strategy for slaves, his instructions for those who are under the authority of another, that's what we're talking about, is to submit. It's to submit. It's to obey and to live respectfully under that authority. Just stay where you're at and live submissively. Last week, from 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, we found out that God's strategy for Christians living in the state is to submit to the government and to respect our governing authorities. And that was shocking enough. But now though, we're coming to a text where we're being told that God's strategy for Christians living as slaves is also to submit. And that's even really more shocking when you think about it. Now, how can this be? That this human institution of slavery, it's not a good thing. So why don't the writers of the New Testament come out and speak against it? They don't, if you read the Bible. They're not arguing for abolition. So why not? Why don't they take a harder stand against slavery? They have a lot to say, but why don't they advocate ending slavery? Well, just so you know, I answered this question in great detail back when we were going through Titus. So if you want the extended answer, that's a question maybe gnawing at your mind, go online to our website and download and listen to the Titus 2, 9 through 10 sermon. Titus 2, 9 through 10. You'll get the full answer. I'll give you the short answer, though. The New Testament authors don't attack the institution of slavery because that is not man's ultimate 
problem. It's not man's ultimate problem. Rather, man's ultimate problem is his own sinful, wicked heart. Slavery slavery is just an expression of the sinfulness of man and the sin that is in man's heart. It's an expression of that. If you tear down slavery, mankind will find just another wicked way to oppress other people. And history has proved that. History has proven that to be true. Slavery is ended, but people are still oppressed. You see, mankind itself is the problem. And society will never change unless individuals change. Individuals will never change unless their hearts are changed. And that's why the New Testament writers teach and preach the gospel. Because the gospel changes hearts. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to actually change people. And the people can change society. In fact, it was Christian influence that led to the end of slavery, especially in Britain, for example. But the gospel changes hearts. The gospel deals with man's real problem. And that real problem is inner slavery to sin, not outer slavery to a master. Your true problem is inner slavery to sin. And the gospel frees you from that slavery. The gospel, then, is man's and society's only real hope. This is why, therefore, that the New Testament writers, they speak directly to slaves. They have a message for them. And the message, it's pretty simple. Believe the gospel, then preach the gospel, and then ultimately live out the gospel. There's no message for slaves to just focus all their energy on on trying to free themselves. That's not what's important, because that's not going to change sinful man's heart. Rather, they are to live out the gospel before others, submit to their masters, and represent Christ to the world and to their masters. That's their job. That's how they will affect real change, and that's why submission is God's strategy for them. That's how they're going to accomplish real change and real ministry through living out the gospel. In the end, if you want to think about it simply, it's just being about, it's, it's being about, or rather, it's about being like Christ. It's all about being like Christ. They are to submit to authority, just like Christ. They are to submit, even if that authority is unjust, just like Christ. And they are to submit, even if that authority causes them to suffer, just like Christ. It's about being like Christ. Our text this morning explains this and fleshes out the details behind God's strategy for those who are living in subjection to another. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's read together now our, our text for this morning, verses 18 through 20. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, 
This finds favor with God. Now, before we get on to uh, get into all of this, you may be thinking, okay, this makes sense. I think I understand this, but I'm not a Roman slave in the first century, so why do I care? Well, hopefully, you can see that the principle in this text it should be pretty obvious. This text applies to all who serve who serve others, to all who are under the authority of others. And Peter, he's not talking about employers and employees. That's not his intent, but that would be a very fitting and valid application of the principle in this text. Now, who do you have an authority over you? Who are your superiors? The message of, of this passage is for you to submit to them and to respect their authority over you. For students, this would be your teachers and your school administration. You know, as a student, you're not totally free to do everything you want to do. You, you don't have total freedom. You are under the authority of the school, and so you need to submit to that authority. Soldiers, there's a similar application. I mean, when you sign up for the military, yeah, they'll pay for your college. But first, they own you for about four years. And when you're in service, you're not free to do everything you want to do. In fact, you're, you're quite restricted. You have to do what they tell you. You're under their authority, and so your application would be to submit to their authority. For most of us, though, the application, it's going to be to our workplaces. That's going to cover most of us. The vast majority of people have superiors at work, and we're under their authority. At work, for instance, you're not free to do everything you want to do. Your employers place demands on you, expectations on you. And God's strategy for you living in that environment is, again, to submit to and respect that authority. But thankfully, we aren't Roman slaves in the first century. And thankfully, that the institution of slavery has been abolished in almost all the world. But we still have authority relationships in our life. We still have people who are above us, who are our superiors in, in some capacity. And therefore, the message from this text is still to you to submit to them. The exhortation in verse 18, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Similar to last week, servants, be submissive to your masters. Do what they tell you. Place yourself in subjection under them. Respect and honor their authority. But with, with something so significant, just like with the call to submit to government, it feels like we need more explanation, and we're going to get it in our passage. You're going to see a lot of parallels with this passage from the one from last week. That's intentional, though, both on Peter's part and mine. Peter, he's building a chain in this section. Remember, we're starting a new section in 1 Peter. He's building a chain. He's telling us how to live as Christians in the world. How do you live in the state? That's verses 13 through 17. How do you live... In the workplace, that's verses 18 through 25. How do you live in the home? Chapter 3, 1 through 7, just one after another. All the way through, though, God's instruction, God's strategy, it, it's pretty much the same. It's fundamentally one of, of submission and respect to those in authority over you, whomever they may be. In a world, a world that hates submission... This can sometimes rub us the wrong way. And so all the more so, we need to really study carefully these words here 
and learn what they really mean, how they apply to our lives and our situations. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to continue on in this passage, and we're going to keep the parallelism with last week going. So I want to give you a very similar outline to last week if you're if you're here with us. Just like last week, but now from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20, I want you to see four explanations of this submission strategy for Christians living in the workplace. Not the state, that was last week. Now, four explanations of this submission strategy for Christians living in the workplace. For, for as you live in that environment of, of the workplace or, or where you're in submission to another. Four explanations. The first one is this, the motive of submission. Very similar to last week. Number one, the motive of submission. Looking at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. I'm reading from the New New American Standard Bible. And they translate that first word here as, as servants. And many of you know that the word for slave in the Greek is doulos. You've heard that before. Actually, that's not the word being used here. It's not the word. Instead, Peter uses the word oikites, derived from the word house, meaning household slave. It's a different word, but it's similar meaning. Remember how I mentioned there's different types of slaves? Those in the mines, those in the fields, so on. This word is referring to the household slave, the, the domestic slave, the one who lived in your house. These slaves were better off. They lived with their master. But the point is here that they served a superior. And so likewise, this text applies to all who serve a superior. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Peter is here carrying forward this teaching and this theme on submission to authority. It's simply what God wants you to do in respect to those whom you serve. Submit. Have you ever had a boss or a superior tell you to do something and you didn't really want to do it. I'm sure that I'm sure that's never happened, but you know, you need to stay late and help work and we can't really pay you for it. Or we you know we're gonna need you to come in and work on Saturday night, even though it's your day off. Or maybe, you know, we had to let the janitor go because of budget cuts. We're gonna need you to, to clean the toilets. Now that last one probably won't happen, but yeah, you never know, especially now. It could happen. And sometimes, though, we just have to do things, maybe at work, that aren't really part of our jobs simply because God calls us to submit to our superiors. And if they're telling you to do something, God says do it. You know, one time at my old church, it was before an evening service. People hadn't really shown up yet. It was just me. There's another pastor there, a few elders, just kind of hanging out. And we noticed a smell. A putrid smell, kind of like a sewer smell. So I walked into the men's bathroom and saw a small little flood on the floor. The drain had backed up, and some really foul-smelling water had risen up through the drain on the floor. And we tried to get a plumber there as soon as possible, of course, but it was going to take some time. And so in the meantime, the elders asked myself and the other pastor there to, to do what we could and to mop up as much as we can before the service. And so guess what? We did it. And we did it with a happy heart. You know, I, I don't remember setting that in seminary. There wasn't a course for that. But that's okay. That, that doesn't matter. You just do what you are called on to do with a happy heart. That's what we're talking about. 
Why? Well, why should you do this? What is the motive for the submission? The motive is God. And just like last week, here's another parallel. And this parallel will continue when we talk about submission in the home. But your motivation is God. You submit like you're being told to here because you submit to God. Because you respect his authority and primarily because, verse 18, you fear God. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. See this phrase? With all respect. With all respect. Now, that word for respect in verse 18 is phobos in the Greek. Phobia. You know what phobia is. Fear. The word means fear. Where respect, though, is a good translation because we're not talking about the fear of terror or dread. This is the fear of respect and reverence. It's like going to the zoo. You see a lion. You're not scared of the lion, but you still fear it. You still respect it for what it is. Likewise, you're being told to submit to authorities with all fear or with all respect. The question is, though, to whom is this fear to be directed? And the answer is to God. The NIV, which which adds interpretation to their translation, nonetheless, they get it right here. They say, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. You need to submit to earthly masters because you fear and you respect your heavenly master. And that's what he's telling you to do. Some people think this fear should be directed to our earthly masters, but in 1 Peter, fear is always directed toward God alone. In fact, we're told not to fear man. Just one verse prior, we covered it last week, we're explicitly told to fear God, not the king. Should we respect our earthly superiors? Well, of course, that's a given. But ultimately, the only reason we're listening to them is because we're listening to God. We are respecting God's authority. We're submitting to God himself. And that is why we, we submit to them, because he tells us to do so. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I want, I want to bring a couple passages to bear in the New Testament on this. Show you some similar teaching, but it'll help fill in some blanks and round out this teaching on submitting to authority. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at this teaching. Very similar. We'll start at verse 5. Here's what Paul has to say, also instructing slaves directly. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. It's talking about your human masters. He says, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to who? Christ. Be obedient to them, really, as to Christ. Verse 6, not, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He's saying, don't just do it half-heartedly or just for show. He's like, really, do what they say as slaves of Christ from the heart. Verse 7, with good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men. You're doing this for God's sake, not for the sake of your superior. Serve them as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Turn the page now to Colossians chapter 3. Just one more verse here, Colossians 3, verse 22. 
Colossians is very similar to Ephesians. It's like the condensed form that Paul wrote, both in prison. Look at verse 22. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service, as those who merely please men. (coughs) Excuse me. But with sincerity of heart, fearing whom? The Lord. Fearing the Lord. Makes it explicit there. It's out of a fear of God that we heed this passage, that we do what he says. We respect God's authority, so therefore we respect our, our superior's authority. You can turn back to First Peter. These verses, coupled with our text in First Peter, it should really make you stop in your tracks and make you ask yourself, how are you submitting to your superiors? Are you submitting? to your superiors, or are you rebelling? Are you pushing back? And if you do submit, are you doing so with a happy heart? Or as Colossians says, with with a sincere heart, or not? Do you submit begrudgingly, gritting your teeth, almost vowing revenge? Oh, so you're going to make me work on Saturday? Fine, I'll submit, but you just wait and see how, how terrible of a job I'll do. Do you think that's the type of submission God is looking for? Is that how God wants us to submit to him? Well, no. We should likewise do the same to our superiors. Now, I can't possibly address all the different situations you all are facing this morning. I don't know. I don't know them all. But you know. So examine yourselves. And you need to bring this teaching to bear on yourselves and your own situation. To those who serve, submit to your superiors in whatever capacity Do so with a happy heart and do so motivated by respect for God. This is our first explanation of this submission strategy in the workplace. You're motivated by by God himself. Now think about this. What do you do if you have a really crummy boss? What if he or she is just harsh and unreasonable? Should you still submit? Well, if the motive of our submission is God himself, then this shouldn't matter, right? We're being motivated to submit not because we have a really nice and kind master, not because we have a really good-willed superior. We're motivated just by God himself. So it shouldn't shouldn't matter if our superiors are less than perfect. Indeed, this is the case. This brings us now to our second explanation of this submission strategy. The second explanation here is is the object of submission. The object of submission. Look again at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The object of our submission here. It's to masters, to those in authority over us, to our superiors. There's a catch. There's a qualifier. You see, of course you are to submit to those who are good and gentle. These are a couple of words referring to an upright, considerate, and fair boss. They're equitable. They're yielding. They're kind to those under them. Have you ever had a nice boss like this? you ever had a superior who's just a pleasure to work under? And really, it's not hard to submit to 
Ken Grenda was dubbed Australia's most generous boss this year. He is an all-around good guy. He owned a bus business. But it came time to sell the business, so he did it. He sold the business and, and was going to move on. But he wanted to be generous to his workers who had worked hard for him all those years. So he decided to split some of his profits with them. And they thought they were going to get 50 bucks in the mail, you know, maybe 100 bucks, just some token of appreciation. But depending on their length of service, they received checks for somewhere between $7,000 and $80,000 as a bonus in the mail. And talk about a benevolent boss. Who wants to work for that guy? Right? We all do. And it would be easy to submit to him. But that's the easy part of submission. It's when your superiors are good and generous. However, the, the object of our submission here, it's broader than that. See, you're being called to submit not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Also to those who are unreasonable. Unreasonable, maybe translating this word a little bit too lightly. The word in the Greek is scolios, meaning crooked, just the opposite of straight. We derive our medical term, scoliosis, from it, curvature of the spine. But morally, this word refers to one who is dishonest and corrupt and crooked. And unfortunately, although we all wish we had good and gentle bosses, more often than not, they fit under this label, crooked and unreasonable. We're surrounded by people willing to be crooked in order to get ahead. People will act corruptly to succeed, and usually these are the type of people who make it in management. But even to them, God says we are to submit. Now, Peter's not saying you have to obey a superior in doing evil. You are not to be an accomplice to evil. Maybe you're an accountant. Your boss wants you to fudge the numbers a little bit, cheat on the taxes. Maybe you're a secretary. The boss asks you to, to write a letter filled with lies. Maybe you're a repairman. And your boss asks you to sell the client on a repair that they don't really need. In these cases, you are not to submit because these involve sinning. And as we learned with the government last week, we are to obey God before we obey man. And so anytime you're superior... Whomever it may be asks you to sin, you have to disobey. You can't honor that request. Otherwise, though, apart from this, even if he or she is a rotten person, even if they're personally wicked, so long as they aren't calling you to disobey God, God is calling you to obey them. That's how it works. This is the second explanation, our motive was God himself. The object is all of our superiors, whether good or bad. We ask now, what does this hope to accomplish? Does God simply want us to suffer just for the sake of suffering at the hands of an unjust boss? What does this strategy of submission bring? What does it result in? Well, this brings us to our third explanation of this submission strategy. Third explanation is the result of submission. Thirdly now, the result of submission from verse 19. Verse 19, he says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
Say something a little unique with this verse. Let's work at it completely backwards. Starting from the end, working our way to the beginning. It'll hopefully make sense as we go. First, or, or last, look at the, at the end of the verse. Notice that Peter is assuming that we will suffer unjustly at times. He's saying that's, that's going to happen. You will encounter unjust conditions at work. It's just a matter of time. Maybe your boss is looking to promote someone in the company. It's between you and another person. You work harder. You do a better job. You're more qualified. You get results. You never complain, but the boss promotes the other person because he doesn't like you and he doesn't like your faith. Whatever the scenario, I don't know, you will suffer unjustly at times, and especially in a work setting. I think we've all encountered that. But what does he say next, though, working backward? He says that you should bear up under it. Bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You know, like the mythological titan Atlas, who's just pictured as bearing the entire world on his shoulders. You just need to bear up under the burden being placed on you. The message here is to submit. If that submission causes you suffering, then to endure and to bear it. As you are unfairly treated by a superior, God doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say flee. He says endure. Now keep working backwards. You know, we're not talking about any endurance here, but endurance that is driven by your conscience toward God. This is talking about an awareness of God, a consciousness of God. You know, anyone can endure unjust treatment if you provide the right motivation, the right drive. And some people can be driven by money. You know, their boss can treat them as poorly as possible, but as long as they get their paycheck, they'll stick around. They'll endure it. Some can be driven by job security the hope of a promotion, and so on. But that's not the type of submission and endurance we're talking about here. Uh, this is the one driven to submit and endure in just suffering by his or her awareness of God. They're aware of God's presence, aware of God's power, aware of God's sovereignty, aware of God's desire for them to endure. Therefore, they endure. Commentator Peter Davids, he gives a helpful explanation here. He says, God is pleased when Christian slaves who bear up under unjust suffering endure not because there's no other option or because of their optimistic character, but because they know this pleases God and conforms to the teaching of Jesus. They endure because they want to please God. Like I said earlier, God is at the front of their mind and they want to do that which is ultimately honoring to God. So if this is you, if you fit this description, if as you unjustly suffer, you therefore you bear up under it because you are mindful of God and you're trying to please him, then guess what? You get the result. And that's what we're going after here, right? Our third point, the result of submission. What is it? What's the result? It's at the beginning of verse 19. He says, this finds favor finds favor. Favor from God, of course. You find favor from God when you submit for his sake even to unjust suffering. God motivates our submission and he doesn't let it go unnoticed and unrewarded. He promises his divine favor. God is pleased when believers trust in him and accept adversity for his sake. And Christ himself, after all, endured unjust suffering 
because of his awareness of God, and he found favor. And God wants you to do the same. Just listen to this, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. It's one of the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. This is the result. The next time you're at work, you're at school, you're in any situation where a superior is treating you unjustly, resolve yourself to simply endure such harsh treatment. And do this not to find favor before men. Do this not to serve yourself, not to serve others. Do this to serve God and to find his favor. When you are persecuted for the faith, you're made to suffer. Even as you submit, see this simply as an opportunity to honor God and to find his favor. And you'll find the result. We're going to finish up now with number four, the clarification of submission. The clarification of submission. And look at verse 20. He says, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. You see, not all suffering is created equal. And not all harsh treatment is the same. Sometimes sometimes you've truly acted in the right. You've only done that which is pleasing to the Lord. And yet you're still made to suffer for it. And if you endure this suffering, this finds favor with God. But think about this. If you're harshly treated, you're persecuted, you're suffering, but you did something to deserve it, and then you endure, that's not so special. It doesn't really find God's favor. You shouldn't have sinned in the first place. He says at the beginning of verse 20, For what credit is there? This word for credit refers to the fame and the reputation one gets for doing something special, something really miraculous. I mean, imagine a young slave, maybe a teenager, and he's thrown to the arena, forced to fight a pack of hungry lions. And that did happen. That happened often. Everyone like this, they know what's going to happen. The slave, he's got no chance of survival. But just what if? Now, what if somehow, some way that that young slave managed to slay the pack of lions and live? What if that happened? He would find instant fame, instant reputation, instant credit. Why? Well, because he did something special, something really miraculous. Something amazing. Here's the thing. When you're at work and you sin, you have an attitude, you rebel, you talk back, you refuse to listen, and because of that, you're harshly treated, your endurance of that harsh treatment is not special. It's nothing praiseworthy. It's not commendable. God isn't going to give you any credit for enduring harsh treatment when you deserved it because you sinned. The point is you shouldn't have sinned in the first place. It's like getting a demotion at work and saying, Lord, I will endure this harsh treatment for your name's sake, when in reality you screamed at your boss and you missed a deadline because you were lazy. It doesn't work that way. You deserve your circumstances, so there's no real credit for your endurance. Instead, the type of submission and endurance which pleases God is when you suffer for doing what is right. 
And that's one of the biggest themes in 1 Peter. We'll see that over and over again as time goes on. If you're going to suffer, and you will, it might as well be for doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. But rocket science, right? And when you do what is right and suffer for it, then you patiently endure, then that finds God's favor. So the takeaway is to do what is right. And this clarifies the type of submission we're talking about. Do what is right when you're at work or when you're under superior, and then you'll find favor. And this is hard for us, though, because we're an entitled people. We're very entitled. We want revenge. When we're harshly treated, especially when we didn't deserve it, it just makes our blood boil. We want to get back. We want to get even. We want to get revenge. We want to make things right. But that type of attitude is not commendable before God. It's condemnable. God wants the opposite, which will lead us to submit and to endure. And Christ himself said, if you love others who love you, what credit is that? Same word, credit. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? He's saying it's nothing special. Unbelievers do the same thing. But he says, Luke 6:35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. And it really goes back to what he says in verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Not how they do treat you, how you want them to treat you. Maybe you have an evil boss, but Romans 12:17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And hopefully this, this clarifies the submission we're talking about. You're going to suffer, but suffer for doing what is right. Standing up for the Lord, submitting to him. Well, you'll find favor when you suffer for doing his will. Focus on doing what is right, and as you endure harsh treatment, this will find favor with God. Does this sound hard, what we've been talking about this morning? For some of you, you might think it does. It's a struggle because you have that really unjust boss or that really unreasonable manager, and it's just not pleasant. It's hard. Does it sound like it goes against your nature? Well, well, it does. Because we're sinners, and, and as sinners, we're all about ourselves. We want to promote ourselves. We want to fight for ourselves. But as we study these passages, you know, last week and this week, these calls to submission, really God is calling us to die to ourself and to put others first and really to put God first. God wants us to count him as more important. God's strategy of relating to the world and to the state, and now to the workplace. It's one of submissive respectfulness, but that can be hard. It seems like something we don't want to do, something we don't have the power to do, and really, apart from God's grace, that would be true. See, apart from God's grace working in our lives, we wouldn't submit, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't be able to. But God in Christ has given us the grace to obey. Through your salvation in Christ, through your regeneration, God has changed you such that if you're saved... You want to do his will, even if it's the hard thing to do. He calls you to submit. You want to please him, so you're going to aim to do so. You're going to aim to take this teaching to heart with a happy heart. You may not feel like you have the power to do so, but also in your salvation, God gives you the power 
to carry out his will. He never calls you to do something that you can't do. He gives you the, the power to obey. So living this strategy, it may feel beyond us, but God supplies us with everything we need. So you just need to focus on carrying it out. So do this this morning. Consider how you are relating to those in authority over you, especially your superiors. Discern how you can apply this text. And then you will find favor from the Lord. And pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you in submission to you. Or we recognize that we are called to submit to you, and you are our ultimate authority, you are overall. And Lord, we do bow the knee before you. And as such, we want to bow the knee before your word and heed what you have to say to us. And this morning we, we hear another text calling us to submit to those in authority over us. And that so goes against the American way, goes against what we're the world that we're brought up in. But it's your will for us. It's your strategy for us living in the world, in the state, now in the workplace. This is how you want us to relate to those around us. This is how we're going to change the world. It's by living like Christ, who himself submitted to even unjust rulers, unjust managers, even when it cost him suffering, even when it cost him his life. He did so. It pleased you. Help us now to do the same. We pray for any above us, any of our superiors who aren't saved. We pray that our testimony may point them to Christ and be the deciding factor in their salvation, drawing them to the gospel. But simply for us, may we trust and obey, submit to you, submit to them, learning to carry out your will and finding favor when we do so in the right way. Keep us free from doing wrong at work. Help us to do what is right and to be known by it. And even as we suffer, may we take joy in the fact that we have your divine favor. In your name we pray. Amen.